What's what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Catch Podcast. Sorry for the break, but uh, let's get into it right away. Uh, first topic of the day is going to be baseball. We're going to talk Astros. Um, the Astros have been kind of on the up and up uh, since the last time I recorded one of these episodes. Uh, they just won a doubleheader against the Oakland Athletics, and... Personally, I think the Astros do have a chance. That is the one team they need to beat in order to win the division. Um, The Oakland Athletics do have a couple of games ahead of the Astros, but winning two straight against them definitely helps their case. Uh, Regardless, the Astros' extra inning games, let's talk about that aspect. They haven't played in extra inning games for a little bit, but... Regardless of that fact, they still lead the league in extra inning games. They're 2-4 and four in those extra inning games. They've had 14 extra innings all in total. They've played a lot of extra innings. Uh, in those 14 extra innings, they do have five runs. And uh, one thing, one fun statistic about these extra inning games with these new uh, rules that they have added this season for uh, baseball is they have it to where now you have a runner in scoring position on second base to start the inning. So uh, it makes it relatively easy, I would say, for a team to close it out in extra innings. And uh, for a team that, let's say you're, for instance, let's say you're the home team, and you manage to battle your way back, force extra innings and everything, but because you have a guy starting on second place, base all you need is two deep flies and that guy's already scored so i'm a firm believer of baseball's long enough you don't necessarily need to shorten it in any sort of way if it's gonna go to extra innings to me i think it's you know it's the iron man team so to speak it's it's the team that's got the most uh endurance for a long-term game of baseball. Uh, Those are the teams that are more built for it, but now it's, you know, it's pandering to more teams that typically can't really get it done without extra help. Um, And the Astros are 2-4 and in those extra innings, and most of those extra innings have been when the Astros have been the home team this year. Uh, But the Astros' starting pitching is one of the best in the MLB. Out of all of their starting pitchers combined, have the best ERA out of every starting pitcher in the league. Uh, but seventy point eight percent of extra inning games have ended in the tenth inning. So, bringing that back, so the Astros, for instance, let's say they pitch a great game. You know, they give up one, two hits tops, and only one run. Let's say that's just what the starters give up. Now, the relievers, when they seem to choke it away, which seems to be the weak point for the Astros, it's not necessarily those end-game relievers. It's those mid-relievers guys, those guys that come in anywhere between the sixth inning and before the ninth inning. I don't have a lot of confidence in those guys. Uh, There's a handful of them that maybe I have confidence in, and that's just because they've proven it in in the past, but with the exception of Ryan Presley, I personally don't have a lot of faith in the Astros' closers, which is 
struggling because when their offense isn't hitting on all cylinders, then they pay the price because their pitching's not going to keep them in the game. Um, regardless of that fact, Jose Altuve has been slowly on an uphill battle uh, trying to recapture that MVP glory. Uh, I think him and George Springer have been the two biggest guys who have just been drastically different from years past and just have been struggling to start this season. And as an Astros hater, people would definitely point towards the cheating scandal. And I think for George Springer's case, you can make that argument because he was one of the guys who benefited the most from the sign-stealing scandal. And it's starting to look like that might have been why he was good in the first place. Now, I'd love to be proven wrong. I love George Springer. I've been a fan of him, but, you know, I I haven't seen it from him this year. There's just been a lot of times where him and Altuve swing and missing that everything, pitches that are way outside and just trying to get it and can't. Now, the bright side about Altuve is the last handful of games – He's actually increasing his average more and more. He just got into the 200s in his batting average. So he's doing better. He's learning to find that rhythm again, slowly but surely. Now, cannot say the same for George Springer, who has been struggling. Now, thankfully for the Astros, when it comes to the batting average aspect, they have some guys who have stepped up this year more than ever. You have Carlos Correa batting over 300, a monstrous season, and... If you ask me, I think Carlos Correa is a guy I would keep, and I would move him to outfield, or when you got all these guys who are in outfield struggling and having contracts come up, when it's whether it's uh, George Springer, Michael Brantley, or Josh Reddick, all those guys, that's your three big outfielders. Last year, those were your starting three outfielders. So if all of those guys are in contract years, and Let's say if you're only able to keep one, I'm this rate, I, Michael Brantley's the only one I'd go for. Josh Reddick has been batting good. He's had a good batting average, but he hasn't really had, like, homers. He hasn't really had big plays. He's been consistent, but nothing flashy. Carlos Correa, however, same way, but definitely has gotten more homers than Reddick. Uh, Correa, I just think, he is just a really good He's been a really solid clutch hitter this season for the Astros. And he's really stepped up his game a lot. Um, and I think moving him to outfield, and say you sign Brantley, then you move Correa to outfield because I think he's got a cannon of an arm, which we saw if you watch the Oakland Athletics game in that uh, first game against them after – uh, the three-run homer by Kyle Tucker, who also outfielder who has been playing very well for the Astros recently. I've seen Kyle Tucker is just been on a tear for them offensively, and he's played some pretty good outfield at that too. So thinking about that, you're going to have Springer in one. If you re-sign Brantley, you can have him. Even if it's just for a year, I, th- I still think Brantley's got plenty in the tank. He may be 35, 36 years old, but I still think he could play another three years in this league. Now, having him, Kyle Tucker, and then you move Carlos Correa to outfield, I think that would be a big improvement. But that does leave the hold at shortstop for you. And you got all these young guys on your 
Astros roster, but guys like Abraham Toro, I just don't trust. Toro has got the worst batting average on the Astros, and just, I have not seen enough from him to want to be confident, at least, when giving him opportunity and playing time. He just hasn't made good enough plays. The only time I can genuinely think say that he had really good plays was quite some time ago. I don't think I can remember any other game other than Justin Verlander's no-hitter last season or the season before that. That was the last time I remember him contributing to where it was like, there you go, Toro, making good plays. But he just, he has not been seeing it well this year. He's just making sloppy throws, sloppy decisions. He's just... He's not a guy I trust on the defensive side of the ball, and right now he's not doing much to make his case for the offensive side of the ball either. So Toro's a guy I would try to move on from. And uh, one of the rumors I've heard circling around the Astros was trading away Zach Greinke for the Astros and moving to get you know better young guys to build your team around and have a full restart. And I'm partially behind this just because I'm a firm believer that I think Christian Javier and uh, Forrest Whitley and uh, what's the other one? Just a lot of the young guys that we have at pitcher for the Astros, a lot of the starters at that, a lot of these young guys that they're bringing up, I think they really have good potential and they can only get better with playing time. Uh, so, and Granky being 37 years old and having a lot of money on his contract, it makes the most sense to trade him while he's playing well, you know. I think that that would be a good move, but at the same time, the Astros are, I can see why they're hesitant, because in doing that, you kind of force your guys to be good right away, or you're giving up the entire season, Uh you know, we still, Justin Verlander's still not back, but once Verlander, you know, if he's able to ever get healthy by this season, then definitely it would be great to have him back. But I think it realistically, it would also be a smart move for the Astros to start to move on from Justin Verlander as well. He's definitely, he's a great player. He's been phenomenal. But one of the things about Justin Verlander that I've yet to see from him and being a team that wants to make a run for a championship, this is crucial. I have yet to see Justin Verlander play well in the postseason for the Astros. He's in his two World Series appearances. I he has just given up run after run. Now, in fairness, a lot of these are solo homers, which is something that is brought up a lot. He doesn't give up hits, but when he does, they're solo homers. However, in the postseason, the timing of those solo homers are. When it's a tie game or it's, you know, you're playing somewhat well and you give up a solo homer, you give up a couple hits, they pull them, and then somebody else gives up that home run. Dig it, really just let it, let the other team run away with it. And in clutch situations, I just haven't trusted Justin Verlander enough. Um, we'll, We'll see how... The Astros handle things moving forward. They are on an uphill uh, trend for sure, uh, winning most of their games in this last 10-game stretch, uh, only losing about three, so seven out of ten ain't bad. I'll take that every time. 
Um, nevertheless, though, I still think that they, they do have a legitimate shot. They have enough guys there to be a playoff contender. Now, a World Series contender is still to be determined. I don't see it with the way that they are currently playing, but you never know, because come playoff baseball, it usually is whoever's got the hot end who ends up winning the World Series. So we'll see who's playing well once the 16-team playoff starts, and it'll be uh, very interesting to see how things go moving forward from there. All right, so now we're going to move on to the NFL and the big topic of conversation. Uh, I was listening to the... Um, um, Pat McAfee show, and uh, he had brought on Dan Orlovsky, who's going to be the uh, one of the new uh, ESPN analysts for uh, the NFL. And he went out on a limb and said, the Patriots are not a playoff team, despite having Cam Newton. And I can see where he's getting from from this. I do, but I just think Cam is going to be such a big difference maker in that offense. You saw how subpar they played with an aging Tom Brady. Now, Tom Brady in 2019 for the Patriots, it was subpar, but I still think most teams that don't have a franchise quarterback would take these numbers from any of their quarterbacks. Uh, Tom Brady had 4,057 passing yards. 24 passing touchdowns, only 8 interceptions, 60.8 completion percentage, and an 88.0 passer rating. So, based off those numbers alone, they're not bad quarterback numbers, but they're not the numbers we're used to seeing from Tom Brady. We're used to seeing close to 30 touchdowns. The interception ratio is about the same. The completion percentage is a little higher than 60. He's usually closer to 65, and... That passer rating is closer to 100. So he he had a big dip with that passer rating. But in all honesty, it wasn't bad. They still managed to reach a 12-4 and record, but got snubbed out of seeding because of the Ravens and the Chiefs just playing so well last year. Um, but regardless, let's compare those stats from last year to Cam Newton's career stats. Let's look at it this way. Cam Newton, in his rookie year, uh, he had a 6-10 record with the Panthers. He had 4,051 passing yards, 21 passing touchdowns, 17 interceptions, and 60% completion percentage throwing. And this is not accounting for his 706 rushing yards and 14 rushing touchdowns. I just, those stats right there, his rookie year stood out to everybody, and that's why he was rookie of the year that year, and deserving so. Cam Newton played very well football, and teams didn't know how to adjust coming in. Uh, second year, he had a better record, but his numbers kind of went down. Uh, the only thing that really improved was the interception ratio. He had a you know, a couple more yards rushing-wise uh, than he normally did. And in the next year, in 2012, Cam Newton threw for 3,869 passing yards, 19 passing touchdowns, 12 interceptions, 57.7 completion percentage, 741 rushing yards, and 8 rushing touchdowns. So overall, Cam's touchdowns went down, 
His yardage went down as far as passing goes. And his completion percentage went down about 2%. So, overall, not exactly what you want. But still, relatively what you expected. Cam, that year, great year, I think. Regardless, I'd take that. The interceptions are the only part of his game that I think the Patriots... Bill Belichick is just going to clean up for him. Uh, and the next year, he made the Pro Bowl yet again. Uh, second time in his career, he did this. Cam, the next year, his yardage passing and rushing went down. But his team had a 12-4 and record. And he did not have to play w- w- the last game of the season for them. So Cam, in that 12-4 and record, was... 3,379 passing yards, so a 500-yard dip from the prior season. His yardage went down, but he had 24 passing touchdowns, a career high to that point, uh, 13 interceptions, only one more than the prior season, a 61.7 completion percentage, which is a career best at that point, and... 585 rushing yards and 6 rushing touchdowns. So, regardless, over 500 yards rushing from your quarterback, I don't think you can ever be upset about something like that. And he's giving you over 3,000 yards of passing offense. Overall, still really well if you consider what Carolina had going for them. Um, Up until they got Christian McCaffrey, it was just Greg Olson he could throw to. Nobody else. His number one receiver then was Kelvin Benjamin, and he's not in the league right now. So if that should show you anything on how Cam was struggling early on, it seems like he's only had running backs and one tight end who would be injury-prone and miss at least four games for him. Um but then he has has a dip. Uh, that was a twelve and four season in twenty thirteen, and then in twenty fourteen it's a five and eight season. Cam is kind of shaken. Uh, he's got a three thousand one hundred twenty seven passing yards, eighteen passing touchdowns, twelve interceptions, fifty eight point five percent completion percentage, and five hundred and thirty nine rushing yards with five touchdowns. So to this point, this is the lowest rushing touchdown ratio he's had um 539 which is his lowest rush yardage he's had which if that's the lowest your quarterback's gonna get i'm still very happy with that type of production um and you know 58 percent from the field it's not bad it's not great it's all right uh and then the following season, he puts up his best of his career. His MVP season in 2015, Cam Newton had 3,837 passing yards, 35 passing touchdowns, 10 interceptions, uh, 59.8 completion percentage, 636 rushing yards, and 10 rushing touchdowns. I think that is easily MVP. 45 r- touchdowns is what he's responsible for that season. And on a team that their best player, Christian McCaffrey, wasn't even drafted. Or, that was his rookie year. I apologize, that was wrong. That was his rookie year. So, they still had such a big gap in talent everywhere else outside of running back. 
Um, but Cam was able to make it work with nothing. Cam, and mind you, this was his last fully healthy season. His MVP season was the last season Cam Newton was able to to be physically available for all 16 games. Now, they sat him out the last game of the season because they had a 14-1 and record to that point, which Cam was just dominating the entire league up until that point. And, uh, you know, the Super Bowl just goes to show you that if you don't have the pieces around you, you can't make it work by yourself. And Cam kind of realized that, and you could see him giving up in that Super Bowl uh, against the Broncos that year. Uh, and... In 2016, his next season, Cam did not play all the games. He missed two games uh, because he was dealing with those shoulder injuries that's on his throwing arm, which is something that not a lot of people seem to put into consideration when they talk down on Cam Newton. Like, he doesn't have a throwing problem because his shoulder has been bothering him for since 2016. But in 2016, he had... 3,509 passing yards. He had 19 passing touchdowns, 14 interceptions, 52.9% completion percentage. That is a career low for Cam Newton that season. And he has 359 rushing yards and 5 touchdowns. So he has career lows in 2016, the season he began to injure his shoulder. Cam Newton had a career low in rushing yards, had a career low in rushing touchdowns, or tied a career low in rushing touchdowns up to that point, and a career low in completion percentage. And it was, to this point, his second highest career uh, interception uh, ratio at that point. So 19 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, that's not necessarily the ratio that you're looking for. And if you add the extra five to to Cam's total, his rushing to his passing, just for a touchdown to interception ratio, that still is about a 10-point gap. His 24 touchdowns to his 14 interceptions, that's not really what you want to see out of a starting quarterback. But in fairness, who does this man have outside of Christian McCaffrey at the time? You have an aging Greg Olson and... A couple of receivers that might be good, but might also suck. Devin Funches was his number one receiver that season. So that should give you a good idea of what Cam had to work with. He was 6-8 and eight in the games that he played. Uh, not necessarily good. So the next season, he is able to play a full season, which Cam puts up an 11-5 and five record. So... Last two full seasons, Cam Newton's able to play. It's 15-1 and 11-5. and and That's something to keep in mind right there. But in 2017, he's 11-5. 3,302 passing yards. 22 passing touchdowns. 16 interceptions. 59.1% completion percentage. 754 rushing yards and 6 touchdowns. So the completion percentage goes up. The rushing total goes up. The most since he's had in his career. This is a career high rushing number in yardage. And then he has six rushing touchdowns on top of that. So Cam puts up a relatively good season. Um, you still don't like that interception ratio, but overall, I like Cam that season. Um, and then it goes on the next season. 
Uh, Kim, once again, isn't able to play all the games. He's 6-8 and eight record again. Uh, and in 2018, Cam Newton, 3,395 passing yards, 24 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, a career-high 67.9 completion percentage, rushing total of 488 rush yards, and four rushing touchdowns. And in that year, he also had... An, his last year, his last season that he played with Carolina, you know, with a minimal of, tw- you know, 14 games, he's put up his best career completion percentage and his best career passer rating to the point, to that point, with a 94.2 passer rating. So that to give you some kind of perspective about Cam. And the following season, as we know, in 2019, he played two games, didn't really do a whole lot, and ended up being put on IR because of that shoulder injury he was nursing and all the soldier shoulder surgery he had with it. But for a career of Cam Newton, his career pass rating is 86.1. So he has that type of a pass rating given the offense that he had no tools in all year long. So I think it is a major gap in between the two. And I just, I think him going to New England, that passer ratings going up, that completion percentage, expected to see it anywhere between 62 and, you know, even 70% completion percentage. I expect to see him 500 yards rushing, close to probably five rushing touchdowns, and... I expect the interception total to go down as well. I I don't see Bill Belichick tolerating a quarterback throwing more than 10 interceptions in a season. So, it, it, 10 interceptions in a season isn't bad, especially when you compare it to a guy like Jameis Winston, who last season threw 33. So, it's definitely not bad quarterback, but considering the touchdown to interception ratio, he doesn't have that many more touchdowns than he normally does interceptions. So that's typically something you want to see increase. Uh, but I think the best possible outcome we can see from Cam Newton here in in uh, New England is seeing him go for 35 touchdowns again. Uh, I I believe it. He's got, he's got Muhammad Sanu there. He's got Julian Edelman. I really like Nikhil Harry. I think he's got a future there in New England. I do think he's going to be a, a good receiver and he's got some good veterans to learn behind um you know and he's got like a lot of great running backs in that backfield they just signed Lamar Miller in this offseason and that's adding to Sony Michelle and James White in that backfield I think they are making an offense tailor-made to the way Cam Newton likes to play and I think it's just they're putting all the pieces in place now it's just coming down to the execution part uh you know Bill Belichick in New England's not going to go out and say, Cam Newton's our guy right away. Uh, you know, they want everybody to compete for everything. But I think it's a gimme at this point that Cam Newton's going to be the starter week one. There's there's no competition there. Um, overall, I, I think Cam is a good fit in New England. I think most people do. I just, I I don't see Dan Orvalowski's, you know, I, I don't see why he would just think that they're not a playoff team. Because they clearly are. It's just last year they they all just didn't play in good and clutch situations. 
And it's not to say that they were a bad team. I don't think a 12-4 and team is a bad team at all. But just nothing seemed to be going right for him, and you can kind of tell Tom was wanting out from the beginning. There was reports of him wanting out of New England beginning of the season. Before the season started, everybody was talking about this might be Tom's last year. And as the season went on, the more and more we started to hear those rumors come true. And as we found out this offseason, they were as true as they can be as he is now a member of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But I still think Cam Newton's got a lot in the tank, and calling these guys a non-playoff team is a little disrespectful, and I think he just gave them bulletin board material. Because you know how they like to use that for their Super Bowl runs, so... All in all, I think they're going to be one of the top four teams in the AFC. Uh, you know, the, the t- top two is going to be at least Baltimore and, you know, uh, Kansas City. And we might see Tennessee somewhere in that top three, top four mix. Uh, we might not. I'm not too sold on Tennessee. I feel they've had a relatively easy schedule, and they faced the Patriots at the one time that they could have pulled one on the Patriots, and they did. Uh, but I, I, I think the playoff team picture for the AFC this year is going to consist of, you know, the Patriots, the Titans, the Texans, the Chiefs, the Ravens, and then you got, of course, your other wild card setups. And, you know, I, I think everyone else, it's just up for grabs for anybody a- after that. Uh, you could possibly see the Browns making a playoff push. I still think they've got a a lot of good talent on that team. They just haven't been able to figure out a way to execute it quite yet, but I still think they've got everything they need to be it, and they just added to that talent this offseason. That offense is getting even better by signing Austin Hooper. They finally got a solid tight end, but other than David Njoku should not be your number one. I don't think so. He's a good complimentary tight end, but he's never a long-term option, if you ask me. But overall, I think Cam Newton, his career pass rating, once again, 86.1. Tom Brady's pass rating last year, 88. Not bad. It's really not that bad. It's a really close to the way Tom Brady was. But on top of the way Tom Brady was, you add 500 rushing yards and five more rushing touchdowns on top of that, and I think you've got a hell of a team. But that's how I think the Patriots will be this year. I don't think they should be any team that should be slept on or taken lightly. I think they're going to, for the people that doubted them, they're definitely going to shock them. But for everybody else who thinks signing Cam won't make them miss a beat, I've got to be with that train right now. I, I just, I don't see how signing Cam doesn't make a difference. I don't see how you you would be worse than the season you were prior just by losing Tom Brady. You know what I mean? Uh, But we'll see how things play out. I I still think they have a a great chance moving forward. All right, now we're going to move on to the topic, the sport that has had the most attention, so to speak. Uh, Controversy, attention, whatever you want to call it. Uh... And that's going to be basketball. We're going to talk about the NBA playoffs. So recently the NBA playoffs had held a protest, but, and it started with the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, 
protesting the murder of Jacob Blake. And uh, I do want to say on the matter of that, uh, I don't care what somebody's done. Nobody deserves to get murdered. Nobody deserves to have someone else dictate how their life goes. And I've heard so many mixed reports. And at this point, it's sad to say that I don't know which ones are true. Uh, but the way I see it from, I've seen the video myself. If you're shooting a guy in the back seven times for getting into a car, I, I, it, I don't care what he's pulling out. You have two cops there. You could easily yank that man away from the car and detain him. You don't have to resort to shooting. Shooting somebody should never be a first line of defense. It should always be the last line of defense. And that's only when your life is really being threatened. I don't mean somebody's about to grab a weapon and you're like, oh, I'm threatened. There are ways to disarm people without killing them. There are classes for that. And I think it's it's just disgusting, if you ask me. It's just the fact that people will justify somebody getting murdered in cold blood. I don't care if the man was in the middle of a crime. There are alternatives to everything. And taking someone's life is not something that should be an option. Uh, we have a system into place here in the United States to prevent people from murdering each other. We can't justify one murder and expect to get justice for another because it's just not going to work that way. People are going to see it as it is. It's a murder. First degree or not, I, I, as long as it's not third degree. Third degree murder implements that it's basically an accident. Like, say for instance... You drop something off your, let's say, I don't know, you're moving furniture or some, some shit like that, and you drop it out of a couple-story window and it falls and hits somebody and kills them. That's third-degree murder. You didn't intend it. But when you have a gun involved, how is it not considered second-degree murder or more? Second-degree murder is murdering someone without having the premeditated attempt to it. Meaning, in that moment, you decided you were going to kill them. But there's alternatives to this. And that, I, I just, it just makes me so mad just seeing all these people argue, Black Lives Matter, well, what about all the other lives? And nobody said that when we said we needed to save all the Jewish people from the Holocaust. Nobody said, oh, well, what about all the other people? No. The point in Black Lives Matter is to bring awareness to the countless numbers of individuals who have had their lives taken away because somebody with authority could get away with it. And nine times out of ten, it was a police officer. So police reform is something that most people want to fight for. And I agree 100%. You shouldn't be able to study... The, you shouldn't be able to have to be a lawyer, go to school for four to six years minimal to even defend the law. But in order to enforce the law as a police officer, it takes six months. I just don't see the logic in learning the law in six months. That's just not possible. And you see it time and time again. And it's just, it's frustrating. There are so many 
things about this and on the topic of this, I would like to encourage everybody to go out there and vote. I don't care if you vote third party or not. Your, your vote makes a difference. Your voice matters. And putting it out there, no matter how insignificant you think it is, it will go a long way. And encouraging others to do the same will make a difference. Change doesn't happen quickly, and not everybody is ready for change. And sometimes you have to lose some people along the way, whether that be close friends or family members that you thought you knew, but turns out you don't. But I just think, at the end of the day, why is somebody getting shot in the back seven times? You can't justify shooting him seven times. If you shoot him one time and stopped... Maybe we could have, maybe we could have an argument. And that's if, if all these alternative facts weren't just speculation. Uh, it's just, you know, prayers go out to him and his family. He, that happened in front of his children. And I don't, I don't care if that guy was a criminal or not in previous attempts. In that moment... He did not seem like a criminal to me. The report said he was there to break up a fight between two females. That doesn't sound like something a criminal would do. That doesn't sound like something a father would do. A father who is a criminal who's supposedly reaching for a weapon when this happened. It's just... I don't understand trying to justify somebody getting murdered by someone else who thinks they have the authority to kill people. If cops had the authority to kill anyone that they thought was dangerous, why do we have a jury? Why do we have a jury system? Why do we have a judicial system in place? Why do we have it where people can go to court if if we can just take the law into our own hands? It's There are alternatives. Human lives matter, and I think that's for, for the people who argue, counter-argue Black Lives Matter and say all lives matter, then you should be for defending Black Lives Matter. Because all lives do definitely matter. But right now, it's not all lives that are in trouble. It's not all lives that are being threatened. It's black lives that are being threatened more than any other color of life. And it's, it's sad that people want to find an excuse to shit on it, to hate on it. And... I just want to say props to the Milwaukee Bucks and every team that protested that day. The Milwaukee Bucks especially because the James Lake shooting happened in Wisconsin. Then they met with the Attorney General and the Governor of Wisconsin to discuss social injustice and inequalities. That's how you make a difference. Now, I will say, personally, in order to make this difference long-term... Uh, they should have held out more. They should have held out in basketball. Like, I get the ownership aspect. You need to make your money. It's a business at the end of the day. If you don't make a certain amount of money, you can't afford to keep the business running. I get that fact. Which is why I'm hoping after the bubble ends, this playoffs end, I'm hoping they go on strike and, you know, try to stop this next season. Use... Your leverage. You are a sports athlete, and the only thing a lot of these racists want to see you for is playing sports. So when you protest that, you're bringing attention to the issues at hand, the issues of inequal- racial inequality in this country. 
the issues of how police need to be reformed. The issues of we need better education for everybody growing up. Not just this color-coded, whitewashed information that we get. I, there's so much that goes into this. and it. I don't want to drag on to this topic for too long, but it's just so frustrating. It's same shit, different day. It's just... At the end of the day, why is it so hard to treat others the way you want to be treated? Be kind and respectful of others and be empathetic towards others who are less fortunate than you. Sometimes people do desperate things because of their desperate situation. That's why it's our part as people who are more fortunate. It's our part as people who have white privilege to go out there and make things better for those who can't have it as good as us any little bit helps and I applaud every single person who has used their platform big or small for standing up for this injustice this is something that's gone on far too long and to have the courage to go out there and say something that you know is controversial like that and you know people are going to get mad and try to verbally or in some cases, physically attack you because of it. Just, it's a long process. It won't be easy. It's not going to happen overnight. But if we all do our part, it'll make it so much better for everyone. And I applaud the Milwaukee Bucks for the way they went about everything. Uh, I would definitely, if I were an NBA player, I'd be right with them on it and I'd I'd protest still starting back right now uh as much as I love basketball and I would love to watch basketball continue and I'm glad it has a part of me is uh I think the bigger picture is sucking it up because we can always get basketball back you can't always get people back who've lost their lives due to racial inequality and I'm going to leave that at that. Just a little food for thought. All right, now time to get on to the topic of basketball. Uh, So since they have restarted the playoffs, um, the Milwaukee Bucks were able to gentlemen sweep the Magic, and uh, the Lakers were to do do the same to the um, Portland Trailblazers. And definitely, I think that the uh, Trailblazers, they fell off. Dame had that injury, and since then, they haven't played well. And LeBron just found his rhythm, and they just got caught in the crosshairs. LeBron finally started to be able to produce more points per game, and I think that was what they needed to really get it going. Uh Anthony Davis can win them those games, but if they want to win a championship, they need him and LeBron to drop close to 25 apiece, at least. And you can't just have LeBron get his triple doubles because that doesn't always result in a win. LeBron getting a lot of assists is good, but him getting points is more valuable to that team because he's so unguardable. 
But I do think that the Lakers are finding their rhythm, and it's going to make them a lot harder to beat for uh, opposing teams in the Western Conference. It's going to make them the team to beat. Um, the Clippers are looking like they're going to finish off the uh, Mavericks as well due to the Kristaps Porzingis injury and Luka fighting injuries on and off. Uh, it sounds like the Mavericks are going to make their exit here pretty soon. And then they did make a series out of it, I will say. Those first four games were highly entertaining. It was, If the Clippers won, it was one-sided. But if the Mavs won, it was a, a shootout, spectacular game. And Luka's game winner was perfect. You know, that was just an absolutely unbelievable shot. And Luca showing that he is going to be one of the faces of the NBA for many years to come. I I like to call him James Harden 2.0. It's just minus the turnovers and the lot of threes bricked. <laughs> I think he is just like James Harden style of play, except he's better at rebounding and he's definitely more efficient from the field. So, they've got a guy there. I think they just need to build the defense around him because, as we've seen with Chris Topps Porzingis, he's not really a good defender. He is, which is surprising considering that man is seven foot three. You would expect him to be at least a good paint protector. But as the Clippers were able to show, when you put him in a pick and roll, he doesn't know what to do. Even if he stays in the paint, he just he cannot guard in the paint. So they need to go out there and get some guys that can really contribute on offense and defense. Because uh, they have a, a high-powered offense, but in order to get defensive players, you're going to have to sacrifice some of that offense. And I think their offense is exactly where you want to keep it right now. You just need guys that can make plays on defense, make the stops necessary when you need them. I think if they got a guy similar to... Uh, P.J. Tucker or Trevor Ariza, a guy of that build who has really solid defense and can get you some three-pointers every now and then, I think that's exactly what they need. They need a guy like that in that team to make them a legitimate finals contender. Um, but the Clippers should, just outplayed them in the small ball type of play. Uh, and the Rockets have Russell Westbrook back. His first game back uh, as of yesterday. Uh, Westbrook put up seven points. Ugh. He was kind of bad as far as efficiency goes. But most of those seven points came early on in the game. And just having him there, having that leadership presence, you can tell these guys listen to Westbrook when he's on the floor. They, do, they play the style of play that complements Westbrook. So Westbrook got four of his seven points in the first quarter. It was, I think, probably in the first ten points the Rockets scored, he had four of them. But overall, one thing I noticed was since Westbrook entered the game, the Rockets tended to drive more to the basket. And that was kind of the effect of, well, everybody else can hit their threes. But if Westbrook's the only one driving, we got to have them try to, you know, they we want them to follow us on those drives so we can dish it out to somebody for deep. And eventually that's what happened. James Harden found his shot finally last game, and they really just 
played well overall. They dominated the th Thunder yesterday. They were out by 30-plus at one point. Uh, they ended up with a big victory over them, and the Thunder just couldn't keep up offensively with the Rockets at all. And adding Westbrook into that lineup, they didn't have, uh, what's his name, Dort covering Harden as much because he kind of was forced to play it more tailor-made to Russell Westbrook as compared to James Harden because Harden, all you got to do is shut down the perimeter and he seems to keep chucking down those threes even though he's covered. But Westbrook, he can score mid-range, he can score in the paint, and occasionally he will score from three. Uh, he's shooting one of his most efficient years from three and he's taking a lot less shots doing it. He's learning where he can hit them. He's learning where he should hit them, and he's not able... He's Unlike in OKC, he's not the only guy who can score. <laughs> he's not the only guy who can get it done in crunch time. And, you know, the whole team as a whole, it's just they played like a good team unit yesterday. And I think once Westbrook is able to find his rhythm, he only played about 25, 28 minutes, something like that. But overall, he still his presence alone was enough for a difference maker. It changed their style of play, and they were just, they looked like the Rockets we got used to seeing. And a big contributor to having Westbrook back, Robert Covington stepped up. A career playoff high and three-pointers made. And I think that's a guy who just gets open because it's usually his man who's following, trying to double Westbrook. So he's a guy who, who's getting a contribu contri contribution from that. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it's just something that I think the Rockets are still one of those scary teams. And you can't ignore the fact that James Harden and Russell Westbrook are the highest scoring duo in NBA history. Not only that, but they are the first duo in NBA history to average over 25 points a game and seven assists a game. This is a historic duo, but because of the small ball the Rockets have committed to, it's overlooked. People rather talk about the odd small ball lineup where you don't have a guy who's even over 6'7", six, 6'8", six, in your whole lineup. When you have guys on the other team that are 7' plus. So, it it's live and die by the three in this small ball lineup. But when you add a guy like Westbrook back into the mix, I think it really just complements the other areas of the game and it, it gives guys more opportunities in those mid-range shots it gives them more opportunities to drive into the paint just his presence alone having another MVP caliber player out there for the Rockets makes such a big difference and they're still my dark horse pick to win it all uh, as soon as he came back into the lineup as a Rockets fan I was confident they were going to win this game easily and they did and next game might be a little bit more difficult because, you know, Chris Paul back against the wall, he's not going to give up on him. But I still think the Rockets are going to pull out that next game and move on. And they're going to be the ones facing the Lakers next round. And that will be the real interesting test for both teams. Uh, moving forward, regardless, those teams, whoever wins that matchup is going to the finals, if you ask me, for the Western Conference. Whoever wins out of the Rockets, Lakers, they're going to win it all, all for the Western Conference. Uh, 
depending on who they play, which is looking like it's either going to be Milwaukee or Toronto. Uh, I like either one of those teams against Toronto's arguably the best coach team in the league, but Milwaukee has arguably one of the best, if not the best player in the league in Giannis Antetokounmpo. So it's really just going to be interesting to see how they're all playing moving forward. Um, But round one is mostly what I expected, other than I didn't expect the Heat to sweep the Pacers. But they played great playoff defense, and offense did good enough for them to get it done. So we'll see how things go for them moving forward. Uh, I don't expect them to move on much further in the Eastern Conference, but you never know. That team is a gritty defensive team, and they've been able to have teams play at their pace instead of the other way around, which is one of the big reasons why they've been so hard to stop. Um, we'll just we'll see how things play out moving forward. Uh, but that's all the time I have for today. Uh, the NBA playoffs will continue. I definitely am going to keep a close eye on that as the playoffs continue and we're halfway through the MLB season so hopefully things will really pick up there too as well Uh, and also we are just a little under two weeks away from the NFL opener so a lot of good things on the horizon for sports Uh, but hopefully that also means there's a lot of good things on the horizon for social injustice to, uh, you know, finally find its justice. Uh, I think, uh, I'm, as a sports fan, I know there's a lot of people who are fighting it and hating it, but as a sports fan, I've just been so proud and like, I've just loved all of these guys who have stood up every single one of them, uh, I haven't faced racial inequality myself, but I have been around friends who have experienced that. And I couldn't tell you just how much one encounter can change your life. Uh, good or the, for the good or for the bad. And these guys are using their platform to prevent other people from having their life altered forever because of racial inequality and racial injustice. So I applaud them, and I hope that they all continue to protest. And I personally would be feel happier if they didn't want to play the games because that's the one leverage an athlete has over everybody. You could say what you want, but if the whole team up and quits on you, you can't just keep going for a team blindly without caring about politics or all of that. It's like we can get back to sports the way they were, just sports. Once we fix a lot of these major issues, we shouldn't still have racism as strong as it is in this country. We still shouldn't have people who are defending defenseless people get murdered. I mean, at the end of the day, we are the change that we want to see in the world. And it takes every single person to accomplish that. However big or small you think the deed is, every little bit helps. And I once again encourage everyone to go out there and 
you know, vote. Go out there and vote. Vote for officials. Do your research. Don't just vote for the people you just see on your one or two news channels you listen to. Go out there and actually research them. Because media today will not give you all the information you're looking for. They'll give you a biased one-sided information, whether that's for one side or the other. Educate yourselves and know what's right. Fight for what's right. And treat others the way you want to be treated. I hope you all enjoyed the Catch Podcast. And, uh, you know, if you like this, you know, share it with your friends. Share it wherever you like. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.